I'm a doctor, a father, an American, an Indian. I've had conversations about life from every angle, and as I've navigated the South Asian experience, I share stories of people and their purpose. And what they're saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and on this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, I'm joined by British stand-up comedian and star of the HBO Max show, Dots, Ahir Shah. Stay tuned. True, it's guided by my own experience, but I'm pretty grateful that humor, so personal and so unique to each individual, is a powerful mode of connection. Even if each one of us has our own mental model and fingerprint of what activates our sense of humor, and even if each one of us has our own degree and method of how we express it, knowing that it could possibly link us to another human who feels the same way is just pretty damn cool. Speaking of cool, thanks to everyone for listening to the show, sharing it with your friends, subscribing to the podcast, and following us on social media at Dr. Abhaydarndekar. Recently, I was watching the British stand-up comic Ahir Shah. Now, I can't tell you exactly why, but I found an instant connection to his brand of personal examination, plus philosophy, plus sweet eloquence. Ahir was born and raised in London, and started doing stand-up comedy when he was 15. His shows have brought critical acclaim and recognition, and his HBO Max show, Dots, is a signature demonstration of examining his adult identity journey through uncertainty and self-awareness, and finding an intimate humor in all of it. We caught up recently just prior to starting his touring show called Dress, and we started by talking about how his comedy has blossomed from an initial hobby that got vastly out of hand. I have to ask you, you said once that comedy is just a hobby that got vastly out of hand. You, you know, how have you perhaps been able to control the chaos? I don't know. I think particularly uh, at the begin when I was when I was trying to start out, so sort of in my early twenties, just out of university, and then I found it extraordinarily difficult to impose any sense of structure on on a life, right? Because I think for most people, you know, you have your academic year when you're at school, and you have your tests at the end of the year or whatever, and then you have and I guess the closest thing that you have uh, when you're a comedian is, I suppose, the Edinburgh Fringe functions as your test at the end of the year. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, it was uh, really difficult sort of learning after having been in those fairly rigid systems from your early childhood uh, to then be in a situation where it's so open and expansive and possible. Uh, and so there were times when I definitely sort of envied friends who had the regularity of the Monday to Friday, 10 to 6 uh, situation. Um, but it's just been, uh, you know, uh, similar to the thing of a hobby that got out of hand. Now I can't really envisage any other way that life could be or uh, yeah. could have gone. You know, and in that way, does the maturity, the lovers of control change with more success? As that success builds, does does the control of this or the structure around it just become that much more complex? It doesn't necessarily, it's not centered around just you anymore, but it's more of an enterprise. Well, it, it certainly helps once you're that bit more established and you, you'll 
it'll be much more rare for you to find yourself going like, oh, I have absolutely nothing to be getting on with uh, right, today. Right. Yeah. Whereas when I was like 22, thinking like, oh, I guess I've got that gig on Friday and that'd be quite <laughs> nice. But, uh, I was just going to say the worries in the functionality, it's more operational. And now maybe you can plan a little bit differently. Yes, exactly. And you gain the luxury of being able to be a slightly more choosy of uh, what you'll what you'll want to do, or at least that was the case for a while. And then when the sort of lockdowns came and all of that, I immediately reverted to just like, I'm yes to anything. I'm, I'm Nicholas Cage on the phone to his agent, just being like, yeah, whatever they, whatever they want, I'm in. You know, tell me one thing, did the pandemic change your frame of mind, perhaps as an artist, not so much in the operational part of being selective or not, but perhaps even in the creativity uh, department has it has it given you some reflection or pause on on the material that that you create yes absolutely um but i think it's i think it's far more a result of the way that it changes one's one's general outlook and then that feeding through into the creativity uh and what have you rather than starting artistically and going the other way um because some of the main things that I had to think about at the beginning of 2020, aside from the obvious of, God, I hope my parents are okay and yeah. all of that sort of thing, uh, is that, right, for nearly a decade now, I have, like, my identity has become so completely fused uh, to this profession that I know I now no longer can do. And, you know, like, I, I remember talking to a friend about this and we're like there, there are professions that you do and there are professions that you are um and then uh, i always felt very privileged to be in one where it felt like i am a comedian not i do comedy yeah but then you realize once the rug is pulled out from under you as suddenly as it was in march 2020 you're like oh actually being hello i'm ahirsha i am a comedian and not thinking about things that should be more important in a person's life uh right. really can can end up being quite um dangerous in many ways uh for for one's uh sort of mental health uh, at the same time as one is wondering worrying about one's physical health in in that same thread for you as you gain more perspective as it's all it's changed basically the the cultural landscape for all of us but even thinking about to who you were before the pandemic and even as now you've gone through and gone forward how does comedy perhaps serve as an anchor for you you know how, how has it brought you joy and comfort as an anchor as part of your identity yeah well i, th I think it's been a useful thing because it was always my way of processing anything has been right let's try and find out what's funny about this and it doesn't need to be funny in an uplifting perspective like most things are simply funny because they're absurd and absurdity can be extraordinarily painful as well like it, do it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, a sort of uncomplicated positive when people hear that do you think that there's the majority of folks that even hear that that it doesn't always have to be rip-roaring laughter but it actually yeah. do you think that's a surprise to folks what? Well, I, I don't even think it's whether or not it has to be rip-roaring laughter or not. It's just that laughter can come from many different places to when you, you know, like there's the simplest form is just being tickled or pulling a face and eliciting a response from a baby, for example, if you just pull a silly face. Um, 
and everything. But then they're all like, you know, there's a reason that we have this entire thing called gallows humor. Yeah. Uh, and that's been in some ways, actually a great uh, dark comfort um, yeah. in much of the last 18 months. And also something that I've found comfort in, in, in many other situations. Sure. Well, and, and you've spoken before about, um, you know, mental health. And I, I was wondering in that way is not just for you and for others who are perhaps experiencing uh, mental health issues, but on top of that, for audience members, for you, do you think that the comedy that people seek out and are experiencing when they're in fact in your audience and even for you on stage, mm. is this a form of perhaps of just group therapy for everyone? <laughs> I think that there's definitely a, a catharsis to it um, that uh, is certainly experienced on my end and hopefully experienced sure. on the end of uh, audience members as well. I think that there's a certain thing you, you don't want to, you know, beat people over the head with any particular topic or purely because like i i don't enjoy being in an audience for that as well so you know i i don't want you know someone just talking for a full hour about um maybe something like i i also want some silliness and some levity and some playfulness and everything but there definitely is something really really lovely about and you know i i've had this done for me by comedy or by literature or music or poetry or anything uh where someone can engage with a piece of art and say that way that that was expressed artistically has it sort of brought into sharper focus something that i had felt in a slightly amorphous way but now i almost have the the words to give meaning to it or something and you can experience it through all sorts of different ways. And to tie back to what I was saying before, sort of jokes are the way that I have tried to make myself able to do that as much for me as for anyone else. You know, if I, if I were, if I were better at poetry, I'd write poetry about it. If I could write novels, I'd write novels about it, but this is the thing. This is the way that I do it. You're listening to trust me. I know what I'm doing. After a quick break, we'll come back to our conversation with comedian Ahir Shah. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Let's rejoin our conversation with British comedian Ahir Shah. Tell me one thing. Um, I, I'm sure you probably remember the feeling you were going through on your first show, your, your first mm. experience. But I'm curious, what were you possibly going through the day before your first show? <laughs> well, I think that... Because at that time, like I, I was just a kid, right? Like, so I, I started, I did my first gig when I was 15, uh, because my dad was like, maybe you'd be interested. He was always trying to get me to do any old extracurricular thing. Like, maybe this will spike your interest. Maybe this will spike your interest. And so it was that. So it wasn't so much. There wasn't like a nervousness of, Oh, what if I bomb? Because this has been my dream, yeah. uh, the whole time. It's just like, Oh, this is good. This is, I'm very nervous because this is a frightening thing to be doing, yeah. but it's just as much like a bit of fun as it is anything else. Yeah. And so like the weirdly to an extent, I, I miss the slight playfulness that you get over there. Yeah. Uh, because now, you know, if you're doing a certain kind of show or what have you, you're, you still get that playfulness with a lot of shows. If you're just 
hopping on at a club for 20 minutes on a Saturday night or something. Uh, and you're like, okay, this is relatively low pressure and we can all hopefully have some fun. Yeah. But if you're on live at the Apollo and they're filming you in front of 3000 people and that's going out on the telly and stuff, and you're like, oh, this could be very uh, like big for a career or like, it's not going to be negative, but it's, it could be really positive. And those are the sorts of things that I think now that I would never have thought of then. And what a, what a lovely thing to not have to think about that sort of thing. Were, were the ingredients ripe when you were 15 for it to be playful, for it to be such low stakes. And perhaps the day before you got on stage that first time, there was a, in some ways, kind of an open window there. But also there's a case of, like the stakes for an audience as well, right? Rather than just the stakes for a performance. So, for example, you take going to an open mic comedy night because, like, you know, say you're a group of people in your mid 20s and one of your flatmates has said, Oh, I'd like to try out some stand up comedy. Will you come to this pub? They're doing an open mic night and they come along and then out pops as one of the acts. This 15 year old who I think must have looked about 12 or 13 at the time. Right. Uh, just, uh, hopping up and it's a novelty. And you've, you know, if you've paid for that night, you're there to support your flatmate. You might have chucked a couple of quid in a pint glass or what have you. Yeah. But then you get to a different situation where, all right, now it's might be, you know, you're on tour in a town and there's a couple in the front row and that's the night out that they're having this week. And they've gone for a meal beforehand. They might've booked someone to look after the kids. They had to, you know, it's sorting parking beforehand. Yeah. It's all of this ancillary stuff that exists yeah. outside of the show. Right. Uh, and that sort of, you, you still want to be um, playful uh, because that's where a lot of the fun comes, but equally you want to be respectful of the fact that, that is yeah. what's happened and that there's 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 more to this evening than just you curious about one thing if we were imagining the alien who's visiting and their first form of human art or entertainment is watching you perform <laughs> you, you you are the guy yeah you know, a british indian man how would you describe your art to them <laughs> I, don't know. I think uh the alien would at first leave the venue with a very odd uh, assumption of what most British people look and sound like. <laughs> right. Or perhaps the correct one. Yeah. No, just I know this from the times where uh, legally, of course, I have never gigged in the United States, but uh, on occasion when visiting my sister, when she worked there, I may have stumbled onto a stage for 10 minutes and uh, <laughs> right. um, but obviously like just hypothetically, obviously that didn't happen. Uh, Biden's president now, he'd probably be cool with it. Anyway, be cool uh, with it sure. yeah. <laughs> but in those instances where, uh, you know, I walked out and you know, Americans would have expected me to be an American. And then yeah. the first sentence comes out of my mouth and it just takes that fraction of a second for everyone in the audience to process what's occurring. No, so, so what, what, would the, what would the alien take away from the comedy or how, how would yeah. I describe it how to them? How would you describe it? I mean, like, how would you say, hey, here's, here's who I am and here's what I do? I would sort of say that sort of my, my favorite thing about comedy is its sheer openness, uh, like the, the huge spectrum of possibility because we're united by ends, not by means. Right. And so I would say to them that the purpose of what I'm doing is to 
make everyone do this ha 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 thing with their face, uh, right? Because we, our species finds that pleasant uh, yes. and everything, right? But let's say they're a mixed bill thing. And I'll say, now I have one way of doing this. Everyone here has a different way of doing it. Some of us will do it by just saying these short one-liner style things. Uh, I will do it for me. It's um, about sort of being able to relay your experience of the world and yourself and what you're thinking and feeling and going through uh, to people and uh, try, try and get it to happen in that way. But uh, all of the ways are equally legitimate and that's what makes it so exciting. Your, your comedy is so personal and, and it's such a window into who you are and, and your vulnerabilities and equally intelligent and, and in a way so sweet. Do you think that this, in some ways, kind of just is the first accelerator of trust in your audiences? Because there's that that feeling. I mean, a, I, I've watched your comedy, and there's an automatic sense of connection there. Is that is that with some intention? Have you felt that actually tangibly? Well, I think what's really interesting is that so. I don't know how that happens. And I think it's a function of just how many times you've done it. Because I remember once, uh, so my uh, mama mommy uh, live in Boston, Massachusetts. So I went over to visit them once. And one night, because he's like, oh, let's let's go to a comedy club in Boston. I've not been yeah. to one here before. And uh, there were... A few, you know, MC, couple of newer acts, and then the headliner was Josh Gondelman, very, very good, uh, like brilliant American stand-up. And when we were on the drive back, my uncle was like, "There was just something about him that that sort of got it." And I was like, "Yes," and I felt it too in that audience. And it happened before he got to the microphone because huh. he walked out like a comedian, and he held the mic like a comedian, and everything about just this thing that he was giving off was i got this right you don't need to watch. like there was no element where we're like oh is he gonna i hope he lands his first line because like you knew before he touched the microphone that he's gonna land his first line yeah um so some of that just comes from yes yeah, so your your level of experience and comfort yeah. on stage and then hopefully you do want to elicit that between yourself and the audience because you hope that it feels like albeit uh, a conversation in which one side is only saying ha 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 but uh it feels conversational uh nonetheless and like they're yeah like they're getting to know something about you i think that's a worthwhile thing is a lot of your art based on empathy i mean is that is that a part of how you are crafting this even i mean when you watch a comedian perhaps or mm. or when you're in fact uh creating some of the material there i think what what i found most interesting with regard to empathy is my degree of surprise with certain things that i was like oh but i couldn't possibly say that because they'd hate me for it right. uh and everything and then you try like so with the stand-up show that I did in 2018, uh, it was called Duffer, uh, and was largely based around sort of my, my grandmother, uh, lived with us in the UK, uh, from around when I was born till I was five and she was deported. And then I very rarely saw her. And I last saw her when she was on her deathbed with sort of dementia and cancer. And this is part of what I mean of like, that was, I'm like, I'm going to make that funny. Cause that's what yeah. I want to talk about now. Yeah. And there was a bit where uh, 
a director i'm not i'm not working with him on dress just because our uh, schedules ended up uh, being weird but the director who i've worked with most uh, doing stand-up is my friend adam brace who is in his own right a playwright and a dramaturg and like direct stand-up comedy um i was talking to him about it and one of the things that i was feeling finding really difficult was that in that moment where she was at her most vulnerable just there and ill and wanting to die. like the only times that she was lucid she was articulating her desire to die and i i was alone next to her and i considered euthanizing her and couldn't bring myself to do it and felt weak and felt so odd that i felt weak for my inability yeah. to do that and everything um and i was just talking to adam about this and he's like you should tell people that and I'm like, Adam, I can't, like, that's basically me saying that I contemplated murder, right? Like, I can't, I can't say that in front of people. And he just said, genuinely, you will be surprised. Yeah. Uh, well, and then the first time I talked about that specific thing and that I felt very, very nervous uh, going into it, very uncomfortable. But then even from the first time I would get, and it would largely be older audience members who'd gone through this sort of thing with their parents. Uh, who would come up to me and say, you know, I've never talked about it with anyone, but I was the same when my mum or my dad or my uh, relation was in that sort of situation. And that was an empathy from them that I was extremely grateful for because I wasn't even expecting to receive that. Right. Uh, and that, yeah, that, that stunned me, um, but like re really moved me as well. You know, in, in the same way, and, and certainly a surprise, but but so powerful. Did, do you did you feel because that surprised you that you were empowered to share even you know similar stories? Maybe not the same kind of magnitude, but just go yeah. from there. Well, I don't. Know. So then there became a slightly different thought that I had, um, which was like that was definitely the thing that I found most difficult to talk about in regards to that story. Um, so that was, I, I basically said everything else apart from that uh, right. by that point. And, and I mentioned that in that show, but then, you know, this was an event that happened in November, 2017 and, you know, did this show in Edinburgh in 2018. And I was touring, I only ended touring it in April of 2019 when I was in Edinburgh, uh, sorry, in, in Melbourne doing it at the festival out in Australia. Sure. And, I realized then that actually there were things that I was talking about that actually I would probably have in some ways been able to process better or get over or work through better if I weren't dredging them up every evening, basically. Yeah. Uh, so then I made a slightly conscious decision of like, I was like, this was incredibly important to me and my family for me to be able to talk about her story and how that uh, all went. But I'm going to be very, very careful and thoughtful about how much necessarily to give over because mm -hmm. now I know that actually the experience of giving over that much for 18 months is, is just a lot. Yeah. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, we'll come back to our conversation with comedian Ahir Shah. Stay tuned.
I'm Abhay Dandekar, and you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Let's rejoin our conversation with British comedian Ahir Shah. Let me ask you this. You, you've also spoken about being an Indian British man uh, or, and, an, and a British Indian. How has straddling those two worlds perhaps become easier with, with age and uh, as you mature and develop as an artist? Well, weirdly, the, I, I think that to a certain extent, there's like an inverse bell curve of like the degree to which I found it uh, sort of easy or difficult across my life, purely yeah. because I grew up in Wembley in Northwest London, which was such a like multicultural, but predominantly Indian area of London. And the school that I went to, you know, the I went to the local state school for primary and secondary education and everything. So we were just very used to the fact that everyone was from everywhere. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's just the case, right? So, but you never felt like the odd one out. And so it was only in my mid teens, really, that other than, you know, when I was watching the television, I could see that, oh, right. No one on the television looks like yeah, us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but just going about my day-to-day -day life, like as a child and in my early teens, yeah. I was just like, oh, this is, this is what the country is like, because that's what London is like. And that's what even particularly my corner of London was like. And then it was as I got older and ventured further from home and what have you, you know, uh, that I realized, oh no, actually it's not what London's like at all. And, you know, then you go yeah. to university and you're one of very few uh, people from ethnic minorities. Um, at the college or at the university um, and you graduate. And so that that's when it becomes slightly less comfortable uh, yeah. in the whole thing where, you know, that, that first point we are like, Oh no, I ha actually have consciousness of being a minority. I didn't grow up with that consciousness yeah. uh, really. Yeah. Um, and then it just becomes, I think a function of age as you become, I guess, literally and figuratively more comfortable in your own skin. Right. Uh, yeah. Well, has comedy become sort of the ultimate vehicle to maybe sort of finding your place? Is it is it serve ever as a guide wire or an anchor for in some ways kind of feeling included, even though you have that consciousness of of being a minority, being a brown artist? I mean, maybe, but equally increasingly over time with longer shows, I've been less and less interested in talking about issues of race yeah. um just because i'm like i will never i will never be uninterested in it because you know obviously it's something that i wear and i, I go about my life as yeah. a thing and i will never i will never know what life feels like any other way yeah um right but what i want to get across and what i think uh, particularly comedy is really good at getting across. Um, like when Goodness Gracious Me came out as a sketch show in Britain in the late 90s, early noughties, uh, and sort of British Indians being funny on television was a big yeah. thing at that time. Um, but you, you want to get across the fact that, yes, this is one aspect of an identity, but every human being's individual identity is multifaceted and three-dimensional and there's so much to all of us that i would feel like i would be doing myself a disservice if i would if i were to uh, because if i were to speak in front of you and pretend that the only prism that i see things through is one of race i'd be lying yeah yeah 
And and on top of that, if if comedy was the only magnification that we had to the multidimensional person you are, that would also be a shame. But I, I wanted to ask you this: you're, you're about to go on tour with Dress, and I'm curious how this strikes you at the end of your show, uh, as you've perhaps walked off of the stage. How do you hope those audience members will feel about you? I don't feel as though I require all of them to like me personally, like as in like want to be my friend or what have you, as, as I would have felt when I was younger. But that's because when you're younger, you're much more insecure and you want, or at least sure. in my case, it's like, oh, God, the, the unbearable thought that anyone wouldn't. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I don't think that uh, that's really necessary uh, anymore. I think that now I'm much more of the way, like, I, I want you to feel like you've got something worthwhile out of the experience. I personally want to feel like I've got something worthwhile out of the experience. I don't want to just be a jukebox for some things that I wrote uh, in the past. Um, yeah, I, I want I want people to feel like there was this moment between this group of people that can never be fully reenacted or wholly reenacted in any way because that's the that's the really wonderful thing about live comedy and then i want them to find it easier to get out of the parking lot than they found it to get into it yeah well it's been worthwhile for us to chat with you i hear thank you so much what a treat thank you such a pleasure and i hope you'll come back and visit with us again sometime of course Thanks so much again, Ahir. So check out his show Dress on tour in England through March of 2022. And a Shubha Dipavali and a very happy Diwali to everyone out there. Till next time, I'm Abhay Dandekar. Because every story told is a lesson learned. Because every lesson learned is a story waiting to be told. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and I share stories about South Asian people and their purpose. And what they're saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Hear it every Monday, Tuesday on Ruckus Avenue Radio or wherever you get your podcast. What's going on, world? It's Martin Tuesley on Ruckus Avenue Radio, Dash Radio's exclusive South Asian radio station.